Hello, this is Haik Balian. We have a full show today. This is my 30th episode, by the way, which is crazy. This show has been such a great excuse to call up interesting people and talk to them. Today, I talked to Hui Han Li from My China Roots. That's coming up in a few minutes. It was a really good conversation, so stick around uh, for that one. But first, I catch up with Kale Holmes. He's a comic, and he's opening for Joe Wong this weekend. He's very, very funny. I dial him up here in Beijing. Hey. Hi. Can you see me? Yeah, I can't see you, but I can hear you. Hey, how's it going, Hank? <laughs> I'm okay. How you doing? Good, good. So sorry for all the mix-ups. It's it's just like, it's crazy that this is how so many of us have been talking for like two years, basically. I mean, I was like, technology was supposed to make our lives easier, but I feel it's made our lives more awkward, which I'm like, that's like the most human trajectory ever, right? Every invention just like... The awkwardness of the human. Yeah, absolutely. So, so this weekend you've got you've got like not one, not two, but three shows. Is that is that right? Am I am I totally messing that up? You're incorrect, unfortunately. Oh, so, that's um, not the first time. Okay, you tell me. Yeah. You you it's tell okay. me. You tell me what's happening. I I'm I'm doing the 7 p.m. show for Joe Wong. That's unfortunately sold out. Um, this Saturday at Yeo Chu. Which is uh, the great outdoors, Bang Jia Hutong. Unfortunately, you know, no one can get any more tickets for that show. But, you know, you should definitely come out and see Joe Wong's other shows. Um, his 9 p.m. show that same night, this Saturday, the 4th of September, it's not sold out. And um, Sunday show is also not sold out. So anyone who wants to hear Joe Wong do comedy should definitely buy tickets joe wong really is one of my influences as a comedian and one of the funniest people in beijing we have right now um the funniest in my opinion i mean the thing is like comedy is something that when you enjoy it live you really treat you treat yourself in a way that you don't treat yourself with other performance arts because mm-hmm. with other you know, if you go see the opera, if you go see like a, you know, a classical music piece, or if you go to a jazz concert, sorry, people are messaging me now. Everyone messages me when I, I love how I try to, I message people when I have time. No one has time for Kale Holmes, but everyone wants a piece of the Hutong kid when I'm not free. No, no, no one has time for Kale Holmes. Sounds like a great name for your first album. <laughs> It does. I appreciate that. That's actually a really good, <laughs> really good idea. Free, free advice here. Um, so, 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 Kale, what's what 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 are you expecting? What are you gonna be? What are you gonna be talking about on Saturday? Saturday, I'm gonna be doing a lot of my set. Um, I touch a lot about like my life as you know, a black vegan uh, kid in the People's Republic of China. In the mm. 2020s, during this, you know, so-called new Cold War that we're living in. And a lot of my comedy touches on that. And just in case I forgot to mention, I also talk a lot about sex and politics and religion. You know, things mm. you can't talk about anywhere, really. <laughs> Especially in China and Beijing. But 
I do it with a, a, pr- a proud, um, you know, kind of thespian attitude. And, you know, one of my jokes, like, for example, my dad gave me the middle name Amir, Prince in Arabic, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Amir. And I'm like, that's dope. So I put that on my resume. And I'm like, man, Amir, I'm a prince. I put that on my resume. And my dad's like, Kale, don't put that on your resume. And I'm like, why? First of all, you gave me that, that middle name. And then he's like, Kale, Amir is a very, very, very controversial name. It's Arabic. And I'm like, Dad, I'm a prince in Arabic. That's just as much as saying that, for example, I'm proficient in Microsoft Excel. I'm lying, right? Royalty. (laughs) Yeah. Whether I'm working for, like, the crown or I'm working for, like, Bill Gates, I'm pretty much not telling the truth, like most resumes. And he's like, no, Kale, it's not about that. It's about anti-Arab sentiment in the United States. And I'm like, okay, but also, (sighs) we're black. (laughs) (laughs) So I pretty much think that they're going to find out, you know, everything they need to know, everything they need to know about me, they're going to find out sooner or later. So I I don't think we need to hide that. Okay, well, well, check out if you're in China, check out Comedy Club China on WeChat because all the comedy shows in Beijing are there. Uh, Kale, do you is there is there a way that anyone can reach you specifically? Do you have a website or any other presence on the web? I do. I have a Twitter account. Um, if you do um, at Comrade Sherlock, that's Comrade spelled like you know the Russian way or not the Russian way, the English way. Yeah, yeah, because it's, it's not in Cyrillic. I, I can't imagine. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, Comrade Sherlock. And uh, my name is Kale Amir Holmes. And you, you also call me Xiao Ho in Chinese. Uh, you'll find me on Twitter. And then my um, my other presence on the web is you can find any of my articles. Um, I'm also a journalist in my time when I'm not making people laugh or uh-huh. trying to make people laugh. thank you um but yeah um you can find my articles in um cgtn global times mint press um or uh you know uh oh wboc news a variety of publications all right kill thanks thanks so much for coming on uh good luck this weekend (laughs) thank you so much good to be on the show that was Kale Holmes. I'll put links to his Twitter page in the show notes. Hui Han Li is the founder and CEO of My China Roots. He founded the company in 2012. We spoke earlier this week. I am going to start off with the most basic question. What is My China Roots? Well, first of all, Hake, thanks for being here. Um, Glad to have a chat with you. What My China Roots does is we help uh, overseas Chinese trace their roots and connect with their cultural identity uh, and their basically their relatives. 
So we have two pillars. One is very customized uh, services, research and travel services. And then the other pillar is an online database where we allow people to just type in the name of their grandfather or great-grandfather and then they can see who, uh, what type of records we have in our database that, that, that tell stories about them. My, my China Roots helped with the research for the documentary The Six. Um, how did you guys get involved? That was actually Arthur or LT uh, that uh, reached out to us. They had actually been, and of course uh, Stephen... Uh, as well as Arthur, have been doing research for a long time already before we got involved. Um, I think we started to get involved about two and a half years ago. And uh, essentially, uh, they were in need of some more hands-on uh, researchers in China, also in the UK. And basically, we helped them out with those research at those places. The film itself has had this incredible run. Um, its director, Arthur Jones, was just on the BBC. Uh, the New York Times did a feature, and, and that's in addition to screenings around the world. Have people been more interested in learning about their own roots because of that film? Have you, have you found any sort of material um, um, impact? We definitely get a lot of questions and interest uh, after people have uh, seen the film. I would pull it in a wider context, though, because I... I think for the last four years, we've seen uh, a real increase in interest in people's roots, uh, cultural identity, and that comes, I think it's largely driven by North America, but also from Southeast Asia, Singapore, Malaysia, Philippines, we get quite a lot of requests from there. So it really does play into a larger global trend. You launched My China Roots in 2012 which is not exactly the dark ages, but, but technology has come a long right. way since then. Um, what, what have been the advances in technology when it comes to genealogy over the last decade? Ooh, so many. Um, uh, so technologically, in the, first, uh, the, the first thing is, of course, the, I guess, making records searchable. So first you have to digitize them, then you have to extract the characters, and then you make them searchable. So in each of those steps, technology, hardware, as well as software has improved a lot. Um, then on top of that, there's the DNA element that has that basically in 2012 wasn't really there yet, but it really took off in the meantime. And then thirdly, I would say communication. So WeChat, I don't actually remember. Was WeChat really big then already? I don't think so. But in terms of doing our field research and communicating with uh, Chinese descendants of Chinese ancestors uh, in China, it's a lot more easy to communicate with them and scheduling calls and video calls and doing video calls with people, um, for instance, in the U.S. and then their distant relatives in China. All of that is a lot easier now. So, so Apple's new um, operating, operating system um, is coming out of beta this month, and I've been playing it, playing around with it on my iPad. And they have this feature called Live Text. Have you have you seen this? Have you heard about this? I have not. No, Live Text. Live Text. Yeah. So it recognizes most text from photos that you've taken, right? And it doesn't have to be new photos. These could be any photos that you've taken that are in your library, and and it recognizes not just you know English or or, or Latin characters. It also recognizes Chinese characters. Um, and I was just wondering, like, what kind of impact that could have. For, for research. Yeah, that's, I mean, we're already doing that ourselves separately, so not maybe live as part of a communication uh, that, that happens at that time. But right. um, what we do is we, we, we digitize the um, any trace that has a name and a location or a date on it, 
and then through optical character recognition, which is how Apple would do this, um, we extract the information and then make it available and searchable. So this is, well, what this then will do is we'll, it will make it even more um, immediate. When you have a picture, I guess, you can just immediately then talk to somebody over Zoom or, or, or uh, live and then um, get those pictures up and, and, and talk about them and get the information out of them. Yeah, it was just so wild, like just being able to copy and paste from a photo. Like I've just never had that experience before. Right. I've PDFs, yes. I mean, I've, I've definitely used Adobe's OCR function to, to do that. It's just like a photo. I, it just blew my mind. But I think my, my mind is easily blown anyway. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to look into this. Yeah, do so, it because I, I I got it's it's in the beta right now and it should come out of beta um, very very soon. So just search so them. what it does? Sorry, now I'm curious. But so what it does is is, is it just takes your uh, library, basically JPEGs, and then it it uh, automatically then there's a setting and you can just basically extract. The, there's no setting. Um, yeah, there's not even a setting. Like okay. you just sort of go in and if there's text, you can highlight it. If it's on your phone, you can you can use your um you know you can use your finger or if it's on your i you know whatever on your iPad I have a trackpad for it and I was just able to use my tra trackpad to highlight that text, right. copy it, right. and then paste it you know in in any other sort of program, right? Um, yeah, exactly. It didn't work. Yeah, yeah. Now it didn't. It, it only works for. I mean, it didn't work for all text. I mean, I was looking at some Chinese characters uh, just in, in advance of this conversation. I was like, okay, well, what if it's right. in the background and you can't really see it that well and whatever? Right. Like, you know, for example, if it's on a tombstone, for example, I'm not sure how successful you're going to yeah. be. Um, yeah. But certainly, if it's a picture of. Uh, you know, uh, some document, uh, you might have a lot yeah. of success there. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, I was, I just wasn't sure if you yeah, really cool. about that. No, I didn't. No, this is, this is, this is great. And you know, all those examples that you give, we, we can be pretty sure that in a few years, um, it'll just be getting better and better, right? To your point about technology earlier. Yeah. Okay. So, so here is where my, my deficiencies with tones, um, with Chinese tones, are, is going to come into. You're going to see it, and it's I'm not. You know, I'm not very proud of it, but I'm going to make an attempt anyway. Um, can you explain what a zu zu shit zu pool is? Zu <laughs> pool, yeah. Zu pool. Okay, sure. that's even better. They can be translated as, as traditional Chinese clan books, and they they really have been started to be maintained for the past thousand years. So even though um, certain clans before the Song Dynasty would already maintain records of their family history, it was, was starting with the Song Dynasty that, that family lineages were much more broadly in society um, recorded. And documents of these lineages and family trees would be recorded in are called Zupus. And... Um, it's it's if you have the if you have the, the, the that word zu like zhong zu the zu so that that relates to a clan and a pu like a tai pu like a, is a recipe or yue pu is like a, a music uh, sheet music so a pu is like a documentation of in this case a clan and so a what these books typically uh, include are family trees. And these can go back like many, like over a hundred generations. Sometimes they even go back to the Yellow Emperor, who is supposed to have lived 2700 wow. BC. Um, but in, in addition to the actual family trees, they also contain uh, bio um, ancestral biographies, so pieces of text, explanation about what made a certain ancestor 
cool, basically. And typically that was when that ancestor had passed imperial examinations and was a scholar official. Um, but it also contains other historical um, records about the, the clan. So for instance, where the clan came from before they were uh, where they have been in the last couple hundred years. So, for instance, if they came from the north, there's very often a map that goes over the past uh, thousand years that tracks sort of where key ancestors moved to, migrated uh, within China. It also has um, very often more or less guidelines, almost like commandments, if you will, that, like rules wow. that the clans would live by. Uh, morals that they held high, and a lot of feng shui, for instance, tombstones, uh, explanations where, uh, where and why which tombstone was um, was built. So it, it basically is an encyclopedia of a clan, and they come in all shapes and sizes. Sometimes mm -hmm. it can be just uh, a couple pages with scribbles, and sometimes it can be a 12-volume, uh, several thousand pages wow. long, um, full range encyclopedia of a clan going back, you know, thousands of years. So, what what condition do you find these in? Um, are who, who takes care of them? So that's a, that's a really important point. Uh, who takes care of them is the answer is the clan itself, so the wider family itself, uh, as opposed to government or, or religious institutions, which is the, the which are the key institutions in the West that were historically responsible for maintaining personal identity-related documentation. So in, China, in the China context, it's very much up to the families and clans themselves. Um, the state in which we find them, that, that's really varied. Um, of course, the Cultural Revolution didn't help in maintaining these books, but after, uh, after the Cultural Revolution, especially in the 90s, and especially in the southern China, there was a real uh, resurgence of uh, these books coming up again. So basically old guys in the village getting together, doing a collective brain dump and republishing, redrawing up all these family trees and books again. So you actually, that means that you actually have a lot of books that were published in the last 30 years and are in a very good state. You also have, of course, like the Qing Dynasty, pre-Qing Dynasty, Zupu, which are which, you know, very valuable, very old, very fragile. And um, yeah, you get them really in all shapes and sizes. In May, you told Nikkei Asia that the genealogy market in the West has completely ignored Asia in terms of the data they've assembled. Why, why has the genealogy market in the West ignored Asia? Ignored might not be the completely correct word. I may have said it, but it's because they did try. It's not for a lack of trying. Um, uh, the key answer, I think, is because, well, one of the, the reasons that I just mentioned, the, the difference between the way genealogical records were kept. So you need to know where to go. And yeah. you also need to know how to get through to the people today in making them interested. Um, I think some companies were guilty of, genea Western genealogy companies wanted to copy-paste the Western model of genealogy onto Asia, which you, which you often see, and which just never ever works. And so has it not worked in this particular case? So I think it's, it's definitely not for a lack of trying, but it's, it's more for a lack of, I guess, properly strategizing and thinking, okay, how can we adjust this model to, to the Chinese market, to the Asians and their data? 
you told Nikkei Asia, you also told Nikkei Asia that you're raising a million dollars in angel funding and that you've raised 75% of that. Um, how's that going? Have you closed the gap? Yes, we did. Oh, congratulations. So Thanks. Yeah. You mentioned that you're allocating 40% of your funding to acquire and digitize new cemetery records and, and zupu from southern China and make them searchable. Why is it expensive? Why is it expensive? Yeah, exactly. In many cases, because all of these records have not been digitized at all. So in many cases, we actually have to send um, people with cameras to cemeteries, dig through the weeds, you know, and then clean the tombstones and then take pictures. And then you need to basically process those pictures and make them searchable. But that's technology, right? But, but one key element is that there's also an, a manual um, a manual element to this exercise. Now, in other cases, it, collections could be expensive because of copyrights, uh, if it's already uh, been digitized and it's copyrighted. But those are, yeah, those are typically the two key reasons why uh, you can, why it's not cheap. In another interview in April, you said that you expect to have a hundred million or more names digitized this year. How is that process going? Mm. Yeah, it's going well. I think we are already at around. 130 million or so ancestors from Zopus. Yeah. So we have about, we have over 20,000 uh, Zopu today, of which some 13,000 are online. And you can, yeah, you can roughly uh, calculate on, on average, each of these clan books contain about 10,000 ancestors uh, in their family trees. When I read about my China roots uh, in news articles, the reporters usually mention other genealogy services like Ancestry.com or MyHeritage.com. And, and there's almost always this description of how lucrative the genealogy industry is in the West. Um, just, just over a year ago, uh, Blackstone Group um, bought, which is this American investment management company, they bought Ancestry.com for $4.7 billion. Um, and I think they had like 3 million paying customers. In February of this year, uh, MyHeritage.com was purchased by Francisco Partners, which is an American private equity firm, for like $600 million. Um, 23andMe, which is more of a biotechnology company, um, they went public earlier this year, and, and their market cap is around $3.7 billion. What are your ambitions for the company? Like, How big, how valuable can, can my China roots get? Yeah, great question. Um, I'm very ambitious, but I wouldn't say it's, you know, the ambition isn't driven by money. If, I, I mean, I, 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 I guess I quit a um, very comfortable expat cushy job in Beijing to start this. And, you know, the, the, the life of entrepreneurship is, it, it has a lot of ups and downs. And I really did it because I felt strongly about it. I didn't want to just start any business just for the sake of making money. So my ambitions are really driven by, yeah, connecting, making people feel connected in the same way that I felt when I started doing my own family history research as a hobby. Um, it's also driven by, for instance, seeing my, one of my mom's ancestral villages uh, 10 years ago and knowing that it's already gone now because of urbanization and industrialization, so cultural heritage preservation, basically. And I feel strong urge that we should at least um, record and document what was in the villages take pictures of the village environments and then save it online so that we don't forget about them. 
So that's really what drives me. And then thirdly, what really what I feel strongly about is intergenerational communication. So for instance, I was really fortunate to still get a lot of stories from my grandfather before he passed away. But we get so many customers that come to us or even friends and that said and it's always the same story oh yeah our aunt she knew everything but she just died last year if we had only asked her those stories when she was still alive and it's it's not stupid because you know it's just it's just life right everybody's busy i get it but it is a pity it's a waste of human knowledge and um yeah, this whole thing about history repeating itself, I just see it, you know, if, if we would only be a better able to just learn from the people who came before us, then yeah, history wouldn't have to repeat itself. So um, I feel strongly about basically grandparents transferring their stories to their grandchildren. And um, that's also one of the key things that, that we want to bring about, basically building a platform that allows stories to be transferred. You mentioned earlier uh, about DNA testing and how that has, has sort of changed, um, you know, in terms of the technology of, of genealogy. Um, do you guys do DNA testing or is that on the horizon for you? It is on the horizon. Uh, we have been doing it in a sense that we work with established laboratories. We're not doing it ourselves as such. Um, to be really honest with you, I was very gung-ho about it. I think two, one or two years ago, and, and, then, and then I really started doing homework and preparing. But and also, to, uh, one of our investors is actually the person who started Ancestry DNA. So, um, oh, wow. you know, the, the setup was really good. But as you know, I think data security, data privacy, uh, wobbly yeah. to say the least. Uh, China relations with the outside world. Um, all of those elements <laughs> to say the least, come yeah. in, yeah, yeah, to say the least. So all these elements play a role in my being a bit more cautious now with how we want to build that up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and that, that was actually my, my follow-up question because, you know, Ancestry.com, they were in the news last month when they published their terms of service, uh, their new terms of service, I should say. Um, they, they said that they have the right to use any and all of your content in any way they see fit forever, and that includes photos and family stories, and, and, and I, I think DNA as well. I'm not sure. Um, so on for, for you guys, like on the My Family, uh, sorry, on the My Chinese Roots website and in interviews you've given, you know, you, you encourage people to share their photos, their records, personal stories. Um, with your researchers as, as a starting point. When, when the project is finished, what do, you, what do you guys do with, the, with that material? When the process is finished, what do we do with the material? Okay, yeah, so, for yeah. the custom, so for the custom services, um, that stays private unless the customers are completely fine with, um, with us making it public. So after each project, we, that's, you know, we, we make very clear um, or we make sure what the customer wants to do and how comfortable they would feel with us, for instance, using certain information for marketing purposes or, 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 or as, as testimonials. So that's basically, yeah, uh, agreed upon with every particular customer. In terms of online, uh, it's the same concept. If people upload their pictures online and they want to share it with their family, um, they keep control. So the user can do uh, can set their um, their privacy setting so the default position is that it's not if you upload for instance a, a picture and then you tag in that picture your grandfather who might be the second on the right of a portrait that 
information is only to be viewed and accessed by you unless you make that information public. So what is next for My China Roots? Are there any plans to expand, expand to more territories outside of China, the China main, mainland? Yes. So, oh, yeah. So, so a lot of levels to that question. So um, we're always in expansion mode. <laughs> but, but the key, the key so for, for, for these coming years, we're very much still focusing on the Chinese diaspora. And basically the um, people of Chinese heritage that were born and raised outside of China. This means historically and, and, and practically that most, the, the overwhelming majority of those people have their ancestry in southern China, in Guangdong and Fujian, and, mm -hmm. and very specific counties in those two provinces. So there is, so that's a very large population, even though the the um, the number of counties that they were from is relatively limited. The of course the, the population of their descendants today. Is, is, is very large and they're everywhere in, in, in North America, South America, Southeast Asia, uh, even Africa and Europe. So what we're expanding into now is data that is located in those overseas uh, locations um, and that talk about the family histories of those immigrants after they migrated to their new destination. So for instance, um, so yeah, we, we, about a month ago, we started our cemetery database so including cemetery records for, uh, over, for, for Chinese cemeteries based in California, based in Singapore, based in Peru, in Cuba, etc. And our expansion now goes to, for instance, passenger lists or clan association membership lists that were located in those places abroad outside China. And then, what, of course, what we're, what we're going to do is link up all those pre- and post-migration documents so that we can really finish the, or recreate the, the, the puzzles uh, with the separate fragmented pieces and, and then recreate the stories of those people when they left China and when they arrived in a new place. You are ambitious. That is incredible. You know, it's extremely exciting. Yeah, it's extremely exciting. And what, what is just so cool, I mean, that, that's also very personal, or at least I think for, for all of the, the team too, that we... Just discovering new pieces of history uh, within different cultures, like be it in Peru or Australia or the US, obviously those uh, places are very different in terms of culture and, and history. But then if you take a majority of the, the Chinese historic population in those three locations, they were largely from two or three of the same counties, counties, not even provinces, counties within, within China. So it's a very small, it's a very small or, uh, origin uh, place. So it's just hugely fascinating to then see, to then observe, okay, which rituals, which cultural customs were, were, taken, were, were kept, and then how did they mesh with the new, with the new location? And how, that, uh, how does that translate into what kind of records have been kept in those new locations? So it's, it's just also hugely fascinating. And the people that you that work with that hold those different uh, collections, that, that's just absolutely fascinating. It's, it's especially now we can't ca uh, travel because of COVID. It's still interesting to just have Zoom calls and, and just meet them meet all those different people with, with different backgrounds, but common threads, historical family history threads. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, it's just very inspiring work. So, so the key thing that we're focusing on now, and especially when it comes to if there are listeners 
uh, among all of you who are interested in cultural identity and family histories and cultural histories, um, just reach out to me. Uh, send me an email. Um, I'll, I'll give the contact info later. But especially if it if you're like abroad, anywhere where there are larger overseas Chinese communities, and uh, we can basically explore partnerships on documenting, digitizing uh, all of those um, all of those traces in overseas Chinese communities. So that that's one um, area. Uh, the other thing that I'm well, that I'm really excited about, and it goes back to the intergenerational communication, we just launched a Discord server, which is um, basically a communications platform. And um, why I think it is very cool is because the age group is largely 20 plus year olds. So it's, it's younger. You know, most of our customers and, for instance, these, these collection holders that we've worked with so far are usually over the age of 50. So now being in touch and engaging increasingly engaging with an audience that is around the age of 20 or 30 but discovering that they are very interested in 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 their cultural history their family histories but maybe in a in a certain way you know it's a, a lot of the a lot of the the, the the I guess you could call the grandparents that we speak to that are customers or that that that, that run museums you know, the typical complaint is, oh, my grandson doesn't care. Oh, my granddaughter just plays games online or whatever it is. But the fact is that there is a real interest among that age group. It's just, you know, different communication patterns, different ways of looking at history and different ways of processing it. And I find that truly um, inspiring to basically build a bridge between those generational groups. So I guess the message here is also if you, especially if you are... Um, you know, if you're interested, and if you uh, either in a hobby uh, fashion or professionally, if you're interested in cultural identity and family histories, uh, let me know because there's a lot of work that we're doing, um, on, be it marketing, operational, digitizing, tech, AI. Um, yeah, we're we're busy on a lot of fronts. That was Hui Han Li of My China Roots. Thank you so much for joining me. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thanks, Hei. Thank you to Kale Holmes. Thank you, Hui Han Li. I'll put all the links we talked about today in the show notes. If you like the show, tell somebody about it. And if you like what you're hearing, if you don't like what you're hearing, I want to hear about it. Twitter and WeChat are probably the best ways to get in touch with me. Twitter.com slash Haigbalian, H-A-I-G-B-A-L-I-A-N. Thank you for listening. I will be back next week.